worthy is the name of Jesus. This one, thank you, Terry. I get to read the scripture this morning. It's going to be in Matthew 7. I'm going to be reading from the NIV, making sure, Mike, we're on the same page, NIV version. I'm going to be reading 1 through 29. The subtitles in my uh, Bible, the first part, the first uh, six verses are the judging of others. 7 through um, 12 is going to be seek, ask, and knock. And then 13 through um, 29 is the narrow and the wide gates. This is all the words of Jesus. So in my Bible here, it's all in red. So it's Jesus talking to us here. And it begins like this. Do not judge or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank that is in your own eye? How can you say, your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dog do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn the tears turn and tear you into pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will Find, knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and him who knocks, the door will be opened. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will you give him a snake? If you then, though, you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you good gifts for those of you who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets, the narrow and wide gates. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate that is broad and is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they, they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I would tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers, the wise and the foolish builders. 
Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, this is a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and, the beat, and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, many crowds were amazed by his teaching because he taught as if one who had authority and not as their teacher of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. So as I said, we're going to be doing a little bit, something a little bit different today. Uh, rather than continue in Proverbs, we will get back to Proverbs. Next week, we will deal with that forbidden woman, for sure. This week, however... Uh, I thought it would be fitting to, uh, due to a holiday coming up, to deal with a uh, particular topic. It's not what you're thinking. This Tuesday is not only Halloween, but it also marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. On October 31st, 1517, a young professor monk called into question the teachings and practices of the Roman Catholic Church. This event, though significant, was only the beginning of what we call the Protestant Reformation, or really, Reformations. At the same time as Luther was studying his Bible and rediscovering the biblical view of salvation in Wittenberg, Germany, Ulrich Zwingli was coming to similar conclusions in Zurich, Switzerland. Through the work of these two brilliant pastors, and later the work of John Calvin, a biblical view of salvation Summarized by the five solas, the Latin word for alone, uh, is summarized by these five solas, the Latin word for alone. Contrary to the Roman Catholic Church, these men, through careful study of the Bible and their original languages, came to these conclusions. I've got them on the board here, or on the wall here. Sola Scriptura. This means the Bible alone, Scripture alone, is our highest authority. Traditions and human authorities such as kings or popes should never replace scripture as our authority in faith and practice. Sola fide means faith alone. We are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Sola gratia means grace alone. We are saved by the grace of God alone. Solus Christus is Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. And finally, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. We live for the glory of God alone. Zwingli particularly taught each of his students to carefully read their Bibles, accepting no doctrine is true that is not found in its pages. This approach in turn led to several of his students to actually question Zwingli's teaching about baptism. Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin continued to baptize infants, yet these students of Zwingli found that there was no biblical evidence for the practice. 
to this argument, Zwingli's best response was that Scripture never explicitly said we cannot baptize infants. This weak argument did not satisfy these bold students. Thus, they broke from Zwingli and began to teach that baptism was for believers only. This group became known by their enemies as the Anabaptists. This morning, as we open our Bibles, we will see our text through the eyes of one of the forefathers of the Baptist tradition, the theologian of the Anabaptists, Balthazar Hubmeyer. Our goal this morning will be to look at his life and teaching along with Scripture to seek to answer the question, what is a true church? Now let me be clear, when I say true church, please understand that I am not saying that people at those churches are not saved. What I am saying is that those churches are not true churches as defined by scriptural teaching. So turn today in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is where we will be in the scriptures this morning. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 27, or 37, excuse me. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37, says this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for godly men who have gone before us. Lord, godly men in church history from whom we can learn much about your word, from whom we can learn much about your church. God, we thank you especially this morning for Balthazar Hubmeyer, for his wonderful ministry, short though it was. Lord, we thank you for for what they taught us about what it means to be a true church. Lord, we thank you that their understanding of a church is not found only in tradition or in creative thought, Lord, but their thought is ground 100% in the text of Scripture. God, I pray that we would see this today, Lord, that we would be challenged, that we would ask ourselves, are we a true church? That we would ask ourselves, what must we change to be under the authority of Scripture alone? In your name, amen. I want to start today just giving you an idea of who Hubmeyer is. I'm sure many of you, for many of you, that's a brand new name. Um, A German dude, right? Who knows who this guy is, right? So I want you guys to have a, Hubmeyer is kind of one of those people that kind of gets lost in, in broad church history discussions. So here's, here's kind of his story. Hubmeyer's career as an Anabaptist lasted for almost three years, a long career for many Anabaptists. However, he was involved in the Swiss Reformation, that's Zwingli's Reformation, as early as the Second Zurich Disputation, held in October of 1523, where he aided Zwingli in defending a memorial view of the Lord's Supper as the 
priests, uh, as the priests at the church in Voldschut. Born uh, around 1480 or 1481, of unknown peasant parentage, he grew up and went to university in Friedberg. He later received a doctor of theology from the University of Ingolstadt under the tutelage of John Eck, served as pro-rector of the same university, and served as a priest for five years in a city called Regensburg. He unexplainably, unexplainably left Regensburg for Waldschut and then returned to Regensburg in 1522 and again back to Waldschut in, in uh, spring of 1523. It was about this time that he had made ties with the Zwinglian Reformation. The issue of believers' baptism was certainly already on the mind of Hubmeyer nearly two years before his own baptism on April 15th of 1525. He recounts a conversation he had, had with Zwingli around May 1st of 1523. He said, and after that same year, 1523, about Philip's and James Day, which is May 1st, I conferred with you personally on the Zurich Graben about the scriptures concerning baptism. There you said to me rightly that one should not baptize children before they have been instructed in the faith. This is the reason why in prior times they were also called catechumens. As he continued to medicate, meditate on the biblical model of baptism, but still before he had received baptism, he wrote to a man named Aquilampadius about the debate which was to be held on the date of his letter, January 16, 1525, in Zurich over baptism. By this time he was teaching that according to the ordinance of Christ, the very young should no, by no means receive baptism, although he would make exceptions for parents of sick children. On January 21st, Believer's baptism was instituted in Zurich. Wilhelm Reublin, one of the Swiss brethren, visited Voldschut at the end of January 1525, but Hubmeyer did not desire to act on widespread reforms in the city until he had attained the support of the town council. Instead, Hubmeyer po posted a challenge to debate on February 2nd for all believers to come and prove infant baptism with scripture alone with a Bible of 50 or 100 years old. On the Saturday before Easter, April 15th, Roiblin baptized Hubmeyer and 60 others, with Hubmeyer baptizing over 300 in the following days. By December, the Catholic Austrians took over Waldschut to reinstitute Catholic worship. Hubmeyer then escaped to, to Zurich just before the city fell. He arrived on December 7th and was found by the Zurich Council and arrested on December 11th, merely for preaching believer's baptism. He was convinced to recant in private after a long-awaited dialogue with Zwingli on the issue of baptism on December 22nd, but publicly recanted of his recantation on December 29th. He was then sentenced to the Vellenberg prison where he was confined and tortured on the rack for several months and finally released on April 6, 1526 after being forced to re renounce his Anabaptist ideas, which he did publicly on April 13th through 15th. However, he again recanted his statements and left Zurich, eventually making his way to Nicholsburg in Moravia, where he would find freedom to pursue reforms at the church there and lead others to Anabaptism with him. During his one year of ministry at Nicholsburg, it is estimated that he baptized, led to Christ, and baptized over 6,000 people. Finally, in July 1527, 
King Ferdinand arrested Hubmeier and took him to Vienna. He was accused of treasonous activity in Voldschut and Nicholsburg and was burned at the stake on March 10, 1528. His, wife ex- his wife's execution by drowning would follow three days later, just for preaching believer's baptism. So he asked the question, what is a true church? This is the question that Hubmeier sought to answer in his works. The first mark of a true church, according to Hubmeier, was that God's word is primary. First mark is that God's word is primary. During his ministry, many Catholic theologians and even Protestant theologians like Zwingli wrote hateful works against Hubmeier because of his position about baptism, which will be discussed later. These works sought to defame Hubmeier and the other Anabaptists by making false accusations against them in order to sway public opinion. Sound familiar? In response to this, Hubmeier encourages followers, you will, your lifelong, not learn from these tricks what baptism is in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but devote yourselves to the clear word of God. Thus you will grasp the right basis of truth. As we've already mentioned, one of the keys to the Protestant Reformation was returning Scripture to the primary authority in all areas of theology and practice. The Roman Catholic Church held many doctrines that were merely traditional, such as the selling of indulgences or the doctrine of purgatory. Scripture does not make any mention of an intermediate place where we go to atone for our sin before we can enter heaven. In fact, for the believer, 2 Corinthians clearly teaches that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Roman Catholic theology stated and still does that even believers must enter a time of punishment to atone for unconfessed sin. The sale of indulgences, moreover, were were certificates that could be purchased that would supposedly guarantee by the authority of the Pope time out of purgatory. Such unbiblical doctrines needed to be and still must be abandoned. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preached a sermon from the book of Joel, showing that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that was taking place right in front of them was predicted in God's word. Further, he proclaimed the death and resurrection of Christ as a clear fulfillment of Psalm chapter 16 and Psalm 110. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes the gospel this way. Christ died according to the scriptures. And he was buried and he rose again according to the scriptures. The power of the gospel is not merely in the events fulfilled, uh, in the events that took place around the death and resurrection of Christ. But also that those events fulfilled scripture and clarified its meaning. The preaching of the church has always been based on God's word, not merely human tradition. The response to the gospel was because of the power and authority of scripture alone. Notice how verse 37 shows the, demonstrates the response to the sermon. It says, now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and Peter said to them, So they heard the gospel presented, they heard scripture proclaimed, and they were cut to the heart. We don't need fancy speakers or fancy accessories. What we need in our churches is a close adherence to God's word. 
Then notice in verse 42 how the people begin to worship. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching, as we see throughout the New Testament, is the apostolic interpretation of Christ according to the scriptures. Thus, in order to be a true church, we must see scripture alone, not television, not church tradition, not Facebook, not our parents, but scripture alone as our primary guide to all matters of belief and practice. Our second mark of a true church that we see is a regenerated church membership. In Hubmeyer's A Christian Catechism, he describes our second mark of a true church, that members of a church must be believers. He asks the question, on what is the Christian church built? Giving the answer, on the oral confession of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, this outward confession is what makes a church. Look back at our passage in Acts chapter 2. In verse 37, the people who were convicted over their sin asked the question, What shall we do? And Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jump down to verse, uh, to, uh, to verse 40. It says, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word and were baptized, and there were, uh, sorry, and those who received his word and were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Notice who was added to the church. The people that were added to the church were the people who had received Peter's word, which was founded on scripture, and were baptized. And if you were wondering if church membership was biblical, notice the, the end of this, of this verse. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. Clearly, there was some kind of distinction between who was in and who was out if there was a numbering of the disciples. In some way, they were counted. But again, notice that only those who were believers, who were baptized, were counted as members of the church. Thus, a biblical local church, a true church, is one whose membership is comprised of believers who have received believers' baptism. The church in Jerusalem was able to count the number of people who were a part of their church because they were present. They were there. And as verse 42 shows us, those people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. In other words, their membership also came with accountability. We'll see more on this later, but let us ponder this question. Should someone be a member who is no longer accountable? If we have no idea whether or not someone is a believer, or if we have no idea whether or not they are still pursuing Christ, should they be a member? How can we really know the answer to these questions unless they are here? Further, how can we know that someone who wants to join our church as a believer has received proper baptism and is pursuing Christ if we do not take the time to get to know them before admitting them to membership? second mark of a true church is that a church is comprised of believers only. 
third mark that we see is that there must be biblical instruction in a true church. Hubmeyer, in describing uh, preparing someone for baptism, gave this instruction. Whoever desires water baptism should first present himself to his pastor, that he may be questioned whether he is sufficiently instructed in the articles of the law, gospel, faith, and the doctrines which concern a new Christian life. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 40, Peter had just finished explaining the gospel and instructing the people to believe on the Lord Jesus for salvation. Verse 40 gives an interesting remark. Look at this. It says, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them. What was he explaining? What were these many other words? Well, we cannot know for sure. Given the context, it seems fair to understand that he is again explaining the gospel so that they are clear as to what they are called to believe about Jesus, and he explains baptism. After all, it is only after he finished this explanation that 3,000 people received his word and were baptized in verse 41. This practice of preparing people for baptism through some level of teaching and further attested, is further attested in the earliest centuries of Christianity, throughout the Reformation, and in the foundations of Baptist life. For Baptists especially, the loss of this precious mark of a true church has only recently happened in the past hundred years or so. It is no wonder that so many of our church roles are filled with scores of people who either never grow in their faith or never return after they receive baptism. Apart from baptismal preparation, instruction from the Word of God must be center in everything. Have you ever noticed that we have our pulpit in the middle of the stage? Have you ever wondered why we do that? <clears throat> the Roman Catholic stage has the Lord's Supper at the center. The Mass is at the center of the stage because their theology teaches that taking the bread and wine imparts salvation, imparts grace upon the person. In fact, the entire Roman Catholic service is called a Mass because the receiving of the Mass, that is the body and blood of Christ, is the centerpiece of their service. Many Protestant denominations, however, place their pulpits at the center because they seek to communicate that Scripture ought to have center stage. For a true church, instruction in the Word of God must be most important. May we never come to a place where the primary reason people come to church is merely to have a social gathering. May all of our ministries and gathering opportunities be saturated with God's word as often as possible. Notice again in Acts 2.42, the 3,000 new believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The fourth mark of a true church is having a biblical view of baptism. In Scripture, Christ only gives the church two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Therefore, practicing these as accurately to Scripture as possible is paramount for every church. Defining baptism, Hubmeyer explains, Baptism in water, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
or in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ is nothing other than a public confession and testimony of internal faith and commitment by which the person also testifies outwardly and declares before everyone that he is a sinner. He has committed himself and is determined henceforth to live according to the word and the commandment of Christ. He further explained that in baptism, the person is making a pledge to God and to the church, saying this, It is a commitment made to God publicly and orally before the congregation in which the baptized person renounces Satan and all his imaginations and works. He also vows that he will henceforth set his faith, hope, and trust solely in God and regulate his life according to the divine word in the strength of Jesus Christ our Lord. And if he should fail to do so, he thereby promises the church that he would dutifully accept brotherly discipline from, its, from it and its members. Thus, we see with Hubmeyer that baptism must be for believers only and is by nature a church affair, integrating a commitment to God and to the local church to follow Christ faithfully, submitting to any discipline that the church may need to give as a result of his breaking his vow. Further, the church is also committing to the baptized person that they will keep him accountable and help them to grow in their walk with Christ. This integrated view of baptism runs counter to our cultures today, to our culture's high value on individualism. But Hubmeyer and the scriptures follow this integrated approach, as we will see by the end of this message. So in baptism, we first off we need to understand that believer's baptism is the only correct view of baptism according to scripture. In Acts 2, 38 and 41, we see that only believers are to receive baptism. Peter tells them to repent and only then to be baptized. Further, verse 41 tells us that those who received his word were baptized. In every instance of baptism in scripture, the people who are baptized are people who have made a profession of faith. There is no record in Scripture of babies being baptized. None. Every person who is baptized is baptized based on their own profession of faith. The Roman Catholic Church and mainline reformers like Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli, as well as Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Methodists, as well as many others today, including some who claim to be Baptists, all teach that infants should be baptized. In their minds, the scriptures never say that infants weren't baptized and that they are, then also they could be saved by the, by the faith of their parents until they reach an age of accountability. Such ideas as Hubmeyer and the Anabaptists discovered were weak at best and ultimately are foreign to scripture. How can a church claim to be a true church if their practice of baptism is so far removed from this biblical truth. Baptism, according to scripture, is for believers only. As we saw earlier, this is assured through examination and discipleship before the baptism is received. We also see that baptism is not for salvation. More recently in church history, Acts 2.38 has been uh, presented, has presented another difficulty. Denominations such as the Church of Christ or the Disciples of Christ 
rightly believe that baptism is for believers only, but they also would teach that baptism is required to complete salvation. The ultimate problem with such a theology is that it suggests that Christ's death on the cross was not enough to save someone, that something else is required. However, much of their concern is with their interpretation of Acts 2.38. The passage they claim plainly states that baptism is for, using the definition, in order to receive forgiveness of sins. Look at the verse here. It says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In their mind, they understand for to mean in order to receive. Is this true? In short, the word for here in Greek can have several different meanings. When used in relation to baptism in Matthew 3.11, Romans 6.3, and 1 Corinthians 10.2, the Greek word is clearly understood to mean because of rather than in order to. Further, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 clearly states that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is not of works. Thus, the best way to understand Acts 2.38 is to understand that our baptism is because of the forgiveness of your sins. Baptism does not save you. If you're still confused on this, we use the word for in these different ways as well. If I was to tell you, take some medicine for your headache, right? You would not understand me to be saying, take some medicine so that you can have a headache, right? That would be ridiculous. It'd be, take some medicine because you have a headache, right? So here in Acts 2.38, the best way to understand this word for is much like that. Be baptized because your sins have been forgiven. Right? The baptism is because of what Christ has done, not in order to complete something that Christ has done. Lastly, we see with baptism that there should be an integrative vow. In Acts 2.42 uh, Acts 2.42 demonstrates that salvation and baptism come with a commitment. Notice that the 3,000 people naturally devoted themselves to the life of the church. Baptism is not a merely personal or individual event, but rather a commitment of the baptized to the church and a commitment of the church to the baptized person. A true believer desires accountability. Without accountability, he or she is in danger of turning away from walking in obedience. God did not mean for us to live as Lone Ranger Christians. The New Testament is clear that he gave the church as a gift to the believers so that we could pursue Christ in faithful commitment to one another. Let me be very honest and very clear then. Biblically speaking, any church that practices infant baptism or believes that baptism is essential to salvation is absolutely not a true church. Rather, a true church is one who has a biblical understanding of baptism, which accepts believers only as the truly baptized, rejects any idea that baptism produces salvation, and understands baptism as a commitment between the baptized person and the church. The fifth mark of a true church, Hubmeyer shows us, 
is a biblical view of the Lord's Supper. Hubmeyer describes the Lord's Supper this way. He says, it is a public sign and testimony of the love in which one brother obligates himself to another before the congregation. And just as they now break and eat the bread with each other and share the drink and share and drink the cup, likewise they wish now to sacrifice and shed their body and blood for one another. This they will do in the strength of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose suffering they are now commemorating in the supper with the breaking of bread and the sharing of the wine and proclaiming the death until he comes. Hubmeyer often referred to the Lord's Supper as the pledge of love between believers. In Acts 2.42, we see the church practicing the Lord's Supper. Look at this. It says they devoted themselves not only to the apostles' teaching, but also to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. These phrases, fellowship and breaking of bread throughout the New Testament, are often references to the Lord's Supper meal. So how are we to understand the Lord's Supper? What was being taught in Scripture? How should we understand this? First of all, we must understand that there is no physical presence. This is one of the things that was dealt with in the Reformation. The Roman Catholics held at the time and still do hold a position that in some way the bread and wine became the body and blood of Christ. Jesus' own language, this is my body and this is my blood, are taken literally to mean that the objects somehow become Christ's physical body and blood. And then they were again sacrificed in the ceremony and that, therefore, and that therefore taking these elements imparted saving grace to the person who took it regardless of their personal beliefs. Hubmeyer resoundingly rejected this teaching explaining that the bread and wine are nothing but memorial symbols of Christ's suffering and death for the forgiveness of sins. Focusing rather on Christ's words, do this in remembrance of me. And based on the theological idea that Christ's suffering and death, not the ceremonial meal, forgives sins. Hubmeyer was adamant that the text of scripture clearly said, do this, not sacrifice this. In Hubmeyer's practice of the Lord's Supper, he also taught that the Lord's Supper is an appropriate time to practice church discipline. Church members ought to take the time to make peace and unity among themselves before, before taking the supper. This follows the commands given in 1 Corinthians 11, which says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What a better time to re-examine and fulfill our commitment to each other that we made in baptism than at the Lord's Supper. This time for Hubmeyer was a special time to renew our vows to one another, even to be willing to give our lives for each other and to fulfill all the commands of Christ including confessing sin to one another and practicing church discipline as commanded in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. So not only will a true church see Scripture as primary authority, 
Not only will a true church be committed to regenerate church membership. Not only will a true church be committed to biblical instruction, to practice biblical views of baptism and the Lord's Supper, but a true church will also fulfill the commands of Christ by preaching church, by practicing, excuse me, church discipline. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, we have seen that the 3,000 new church members devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, etc., Apostles' teaching, as we have already seen, is essentially the apostolic of interpretation of Christ according to the scriptures. Eventually, much of these teachings are contained in what we call the New Testament. These members are described as devoting themselves. So what happens when they stop devoting themselves? What, happens when they, what, what happened when they fell into grave sin or broke unity with each other? Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, describes Christ's prescription for such a situation. When someone sins against an individual or against the church, that person is to be approached individually. If they refuse to repent of their sin and and rejoin in unity, then the person should be approached with two or three witnesses. Again, if the person refuses to repent of their sin, then the matter should be brought before the church. Christ says that if the person still refuses to listen, that the church should take action by treating the person as if he were no longer a believer. So let's quickly break this down. First, the person who sinned and is unrepentant reveals that they are not walking in obedience to the gospel. Is that not clear? If they're unrepentant, they're clearly not walking in obedience to the gospel. The scripture is clear that if we are pursuing Christ, we are to repent and confess sin. The way of a healthy believer is humility. Second, we see in, this, in, in Matthew 18 that the goal in every single step is repentance. What is sought at every step of the way is that the person would repent and be restored to unity. unity. What the church wants is for the person to be restored, not to treat someone poorly. Third, the church, how should the church treat an unbeliever? We must ask that question. If Christ tells us, treat them as a tax collector and sinner, what does that mean for a church to treat someone like an unbeliever? There are two important answers. One, as we already saw, unbelievers are not to be members of the church. Thus, If Christ commands us to treat an unrepentant and wayward brother or sister as if they were an unbeliever, the church ought to remove them from the roles. Secondly, the church's primary task is to share the gospel with unbelievers. If we are to treat the unrepentant person like an unbeliever, we must share the gospel with them. Not treat them poorly, not look at them and laugh at them and spit at them when they walk down the road, but we need to share the gospel with them. Clearly, they're not acting like a believer. So we must be sure to continue to share the gospel with them them just in case they never were a believer in the first place. Ultimately, the entire goal of church discipline, or you could even call it church restoration, is to maintain as much as is humanly possible a pure church. The invisible or universal church is is, is comprised only of believers. 
Therefore, the visible or local church logically ought to be an accurate reflection of the universal church as much as possible. We have seen Hubmeyer integrate the principles of church discipline into his theologies of baptism and the Lord's Supper. For him, a true church is a church that seeks to be as pure as possible this side of heaven. Therefore, it is essential that anyone committing to the church in membership, baptism, or continuing in the fellowship of the Lord's Supper be continually reminded of the biblical command uh, to the church to pursue holiness. Pursuing holiness through church discipline is the most loving thing that we can do. To allow a person to live in sin is not loving. To call the person to repentance and to the gospel is loving. So we must ask ourselves the question that Hubmeyer asked himself and asked all the churches. The same question that the scriptures are asking us today. Is our church a true church? Is our church a healthy church? What might we need to change? Are you willing to make those changes? Are there areas where as a church member or as a church as a whole that we need to repent of and seek to be in line with the word? Two last areas of application. If you're here today and you're looking for a church, I hope this is what we're seeking to be because it's what God's word says. If you're here and you're not a member of our church, you'd like to pursue church membership, let me know, let, let someone in our church know we love to talk to you about how we can do that, how we can pursue that goal and how we can, how we can bring you into that accountability that, that, that God asks of his church, that God requires of believers. And, we, and to be able to do that through this church, if you'd like to do that through this church, we would love to be able to share with you how you can do that and how you can make that happen. Secondly, today, if you're not a believer, if you're hearing all this and and the only thing that comes to mind is, I don't have that relationship with Jesus. I want to share with you today, Jesus Christ died for your sins. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on humanity. Something he didn't need to do. But he took on humanity so that he could live his life in perfect obedience to the Father and die on a cross so that he could pay the penalty that's earned for your sins and for mine. But he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave. And in that resurrection, he conquered sin and Satan and death. And that salvation is available through, as Peter said, through repentance. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust him for your salvation today. If you want to need to talk to somebody about that, if you want to know how you can know for sure that you're a Christian, please come to me. I'd love to chat with you about that as well. Center into a, 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 an invitation time. Lord, thank you for this opportunity. Lord, again, we thank you for godly men. We thank you for the clarity of your word. God, I pray that we would be a church that seeks at every moment to be faithful to your word, not traditions, not what everybody else is doing, not what our community says is okay, not what television says is okay, not what anybody else says is okay, except for what your word teaches. 
Lord, sometimes that trail is going to be hard. As we read in our scripture reading, the way is narrow that leads to life. God, I pray you would give us the faithfulness to do that, to, to take that narrow path, to follow you and to be a true church. Or to be a church that you would say, well done, my good and faithful servants. Lord, may this be our goal. May you bring us, bring us to a place of humility before your word that we would seek to do this to your honor and glory. In your name.